Hi everyone, I'm Pamelia Chia and you are listening to the Singapore Noodles Podcast. You go to destination to learn about Singaporean food culture. Today I have on the show Dhruv Shankar who is the founder of Met Onion Slice on Instagram and the Boring Food Workshops on Airbnb. Dhruv moved to Singapore from India and has been actively sharing recipes on his Instagram. So I invited him to have a chat with me about just what makes the Indian food that we have in Singapore so unique and also how COVID and technology is influencing the way that we eat and cook. Let's start with um, your background. So where exactly are you from mm-hmm. and what brought you to Singapore? So I'm, I'm from India. Okay, I moved to Singapore about uh, seven years ago. Um, and uh, look, I came here for work. Okay, and I I also have a full time job. So I'm not a full time chef. I have a full time job as a marketer. I, I balance two lives. That's what I tell people. So, uh, but uh, but yeah, I moved to Singapore for work about seven years ago, and I've been here ever since. Um, I I grew up in in a place called Hyderabad in the southern part of India, uh, but then you know work took me all over the country really. So. So quite, uh, I, uh, I don't like to tell people I'm from the United States of India because, you know, from all over. My dad's from the north, my mom's from the south, and, you know, I've kind of lived everywhere. Mm. But, uh, yeah. Mm. So when you first moved to Singapore, did you have any um, impressions of Singaporean Indian food um, at the start? And how did that change? So, uh, so the funny thing is I'd never visited Singapore before, uh, before moving here. And, uh, you know, it, it had just never happened. I'd been to other countries in Asia. But uh, when the company told me that, listen, we're going to be, you know, the new place you're going to be is in Singapore. There's a role that you're following up there. Um, I was like, wow, okay, I just haven't visited Singapore. But, you know, I just figured, you know, urban country, a lot of people did mention that, uh, oh, you know what, you're not going to miss Indian food, which, again, it's, it's a very typical thing uh, that, that families will tell you. you know, they imagine that the first thing you're going to miss is the food. So you're sorted. India, uh, Singapore's got lots of Indian food. So I said, okay, I came with a very open mind. and uh, But I realized after uh, moving here that the Indian food is very different from, you know, typical Indian food. And uh, and those were, and that was, uh, that was fascinating for me because I had not seen that or that facet or that side of, uh, of a cuisine that I, you know, thought I was <laughs> quite an expert in actually. Yeah. Mm. So what were some differences that you noticed? Right. So, so Prata, for example, right. That was, that's like the, that's the flagship uh, Indian uh, dish. Uh, that's out here and uh, honestly prata is uh, i mean they're great it's one kind of bread one of many thousands of breads that we have in india um and i think i was just a little surprised to see that be the champion right like uh, like i'm always fascinated with how chicken tikka masala became britain's you know the uk's national dish um and you know the like biryani of course is popular everywhere but uh, but just seeing that the prata had become so popular and was such a big deal here and you have prata specialists and everyone had their own favorite place um so that was amazing to see um and that was not a dish that i thought would would uh, you know it's, it's not a very glamorous dish right you know uh, typically growing up for me prata was a very simple you know side dish with food and prata is like one kind of bread so to see a bread get that kind of uh, love and you know make that impact on uh, on people i was like wow this is something here so so yeah that was that was interesting to see yeah so do you have pr- uh, roti prata the way we enjoy it in singapore in india in the no egg- it's a little different yeah no it's actually quite different uh, so so we don't call it roti and prata roti and prata are two different things and the word prata itself right it's uh, uh, it's 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 a word is the word paratha or porota which is kind of compressed and turned into prata in Singapore. 
So for us, the two different things and roti just means bread. And, you know, there's lots of different kinds. Um, and typically what happens is, you know, you have a bread, but then you have a couple of curries to go with it. Um, and that's usually it. Unless it's a really rich stuffed bread where you don't really need anything, uh, you know, on the side. So, so that's usually how it's, uh, it's eaten. Nobody, uh, nobody goes out for paratha, right? Like unless you're going out for a stuffed paratha, which is an, another, you know, genre of bread on its own. Um, one of the biggest surprises for me, another one was Roti John. I was like, Roti John, that sounds interesting. I'm like, who's John, right? And like, why is he famous for his roti? And then I realized that, you know, it's, it, that is not even a roti. Like, I mean, it's a roti technically. It's a bread. It's a baked bread. Um, and that, that showed up. And uh, that was a very different thing. That's something I tried in Malaysia and then I had over here in Singapore as well. Um, and then you get to see that, you know, at the end of the day, it is, uh, it is bread. And that's what uh, people, people around the world, it's familiar, right? People... You know, you know what bread is like, you know, a croissant, like, again, it's a layered bread. That's all it is. So I think uh, people like that in, in a lot of forms. And it's good if mm. people are taking that out there. Yeah. yeah. And apart from yeah. specific dishes, were there um, new ingredients that you saw being incorporated into Indian food in Singapore? Yes. So I think, uh, see, Singaporean Indian food, right, has, uh, uh, number one, it's it's more Southern Indian food that 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 is is uh, prevalent here but also the influences of malay food right like uh, like using lemongrass in a curry right that's not something that you do in india um lemongrass is um uh, you know i've never used it the only thing that uh, that i've used lemongrass in growing up was to put it into tea you know mm. and uh, and when i say tea put it into chai right like just, and that's also just a little uh you know we want to do something unusual instead of putting ginger in the tea today let's chuck some lemongrass in. in fact lemongrass was was quite an exotic ingredient growing up uh, for us um and to see it being used in a curry here that's quite interesting um same for pandan leaves pandan leaves again uh you know wonderful flavor and in fact we do use pandan essence we use something called kevra which is uh, uh the the water right? and we use that to to flavor our biryani and rices but that is up north and uh, you know it's uh, it's again the pandan leaf itself i saw a pandan leaf for the first time when i moved to singapore and uh, i was like this is super fragrant right and uh, i mean and it has no distinct look right it's just a long green leaf and I'm like wow that's got so much flavor and that and then when you start putting those connections together I'm like oh this is you know it's a familiar flavor but you know i've never used it in its fresh form um and i can see that you know it's pairing very well with a lot of the uh, the Indian food that, that's being uh, produced out here. Yeah. yeah, I love that you mentioned curry because in my understanding, mm-hmm. curry is not a term that exists in India, is it not? I mean, curry is a very, very broad term, <laughs> like in <laughs> <same> person. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, uh, like there are so many different kinds of curries. Uh, so very broad term. I mean, we, uh, you know, like if you, if you were to say, that, listen, I'm making curry for dinner, people would be like, yeah, but what curry? I mean, like you have to specify. There's so many different kinds. Yeah, and I think something that you mentioned on your Instagram that I felt was really interesting was Chinese Indian food or what you call Chindian food. Oh, yes. What exactly is that? So that is, um, number one, it is wonderful. Okay, Chindian food is is absolutely delightful. It brings back so many happy memories of a kid, you know, just growing up. And, uh, you know, when you're not doing Indian food, right, you go out and Chinese food, going to a Chinese restaurant was something really, really fun. Okay, just because, you know, the food is so different. And, and also like, you know, finger food was done very, very nicely, little snacky things. Um, you know, who doesn't like, there's no kid in the world who doesn't like a chicken nugget. Okay. But then, you know, fried chicken, all of that, right. It works great everywhere. But then you see these wonderful, you know, takes on it. Like uh, then there's a dish which is called American chop suey. Okay. 
And uh, man, I don't think it's American. I don't think it's Chinese. I don't even know who where it is from, right? But uh, it is such a delight to eat, right? Because when you're a kid, it's crispy noodle. It's you know sweet and savory and all of that. But wait, before I get carried away and go into some childhood memory about Indian food, uh, what is Indian food, right? Um, I think it is. Uh, it, it so there were there were uh, Chinese immigrants who moved to India, um, and it is the food that they that they created that they introduced the Indian subcontinent to. But then also start using local ingredients, uh, you know, to, to to create another cuisine. I would not even like. I think Chindian is another cuisine on its own. And even within Chinese, right? It is folks who came from the Hunan province. It's people who came the Hakka community, right? Um, in fact, Hakka noodles is when you think about when you ask for noodles in India, you're going to get Hakka noodles. And Hakka noodles for the longest time, right? We didn't even know that Hakka is another community, right? Within Chinese. But then it's this wonderful amalgamation of of all of these Chinese immigrants who came, combined their Chinese food, and then also married it with the Indian spices and the ingredients that were around. So I think those are some, you know. So for me, I think that was, you know, that that's another cuisine on its own altogether. Like mm-hmm. I've 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 cooked a lot of Chinese Indian Chinese food for Chinese friends, and they always say this is completely different from anything I've ever had. Um, and you know, it is. It is just that. I mean, the ingredients are, are different. It's a. Um, uh, it's not something that that you see every other day. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think Chindian food exists in Singapore? Because I don't think I've ever had any Chindian dish before. No, there are a couple of Indian restaurants that do a little bit of Chindian food, but there's no one who actually owns the Chindian, uh, you know, category or like you know space uh, fully. I mean, you have a couple of dishes that will pop up on a menu here and there. Um, like a chicken 65, for example, that is a Chindian dish. And again, the origins are very, you know, there's a lot of, you know, interesting stories behind it. Uh, chicken Manchurian, for example, or, vegetable, or cauliflower Manchurian. They are all dishes that are very popular. Uh, but I don't think there's a Chindian, Chindian restaurant that is really doing justice to that, uh, that cuisine. Soups? Soups are a big deal. The only soups that you knew in India were Chinese soups. Um, and, but then our soups were, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, lot of Chindian soups. Uh, have corn and like you know just the process of them breaking an egg into a soup i know that asian food has so many different kinds of soups but in india soups are not a very big part of indian food but you know but you go to a chinese restaurant when you want a bowl of soup on a great bowl of soup with vegetables and chicken and all of that um so so those are very interesting things that chindian food did for india so (laughs) when you moved to singapore what were some new ingredients that you had never seen before or cooked with in india Sichuan peppercorn, my God, this thing, that was something that changed my world actually. Because I fell in love with uh, with mala food uh, and mm-hmm. just just Sichuan food, right? Like because in India, growing up, you know, Shezwan, right? Was, that's the word, you know, Shezwan. And I'm not sure what Shezwan was. Or say. I knew it was like a place in China, right? And you know a little bit, you read up. Uh, but but you know, the, just the Sichuan peppercorn, right? That was something new, and that a local Singaporean friend introduced me to, um, and uh, and you know that that kind of changed my you know entire perspective on it because in india the sichuan peppercorn is usually used in medicines so it has like it has medicinal properties as well but it is not uh, not used a lot in the food and even the chinese uh, indian food right indian food does not feature the sichuan peppercorn too much because palates in india tend to think of it as medicinal um, and you know that's just how it is so that was one that really uh, changed uh, uh, my my life uh, tofu tofu was another really big one uh, and you know I, a lot of people you know chuckle and say like tofu I'm like is that 
I mean, the thing. But here's the thing, right? When tofu came to India, it was positioned as an alternative to paneer, which is cottage cheese. And I feel like that is a, that was a wrong thing to do uh, from a marketing perspective, also because you know you're setting that product up for failure. It's not it's not cheese. It's it's not gonna just because it looks. It's also white and looks you know like a like a square like a cube. Uh, does not mean it's the, it's an alternative. So a lot of people got got turned off and they didn't cook it right. So for me, tofu was just something I'd eaten maybe a couple of times at a restaurant here and there. Never done much with it. But when I came to Singapore and saw so many different kinds of it, right, right from the tofu skin and like you can like dip into a hot pot and then you know eat to like you know the fried tofu puffs to just like you know your stuff that you can use in a sambal goreng and things like that. Fantastic, the tahu, like just getting it fresh. I mean, even though you could just go and buy fresh tofu like that, right, from the wet market. Um, so those are all those are new. Uh, so tofu was a big one. I think tofu because I cook tofu a lot now and I cook it not because I'm looking for a meat alternative or I'm looking to uh, you know make something exotic I cook it because it is part of my cuisine now it's part of what I you know it's part of my kitchen I I I love it so that is a yeah so tofu and Sichuan peppers I guess yeah when I when I saw that post about tofu I was pretty shocked that you know it's not something that's common in India and I mean I eat so many recipes for sak paneer right like meatless mm-hmm. or, or vegan sak paneer and they would use yeah. firm tofu and they would sear that instead of the paneer cheese um, which is mm-hmm. what you did yeah yeah yeah, it doesn't quite work though. You know, it doesn't quite work. I would rather, like, you know, I would rather tell people this. If you're doing a sag paneer, do a sag paneer. That's fine. But like, if you're going to give me a beautiful piece of tofu, right? Uh, let's make something else with it, right? Let's make something else with it instead of putting it into this uh, this spinach gravy. It'll work, but it's still gon- not going to be great. But let's do justice to this ingredient. You know, it's something that fries up well. You know, you get a great crust on the outside, but it can be gentle and, you know, wobbly and soft inside. So let, there are, we have other sauces and other, you know, you know, curries that we can, you know, simmer this in and do a lot of stuff. We can scramble it and do a lot of things with it too. I, uh, I do that as well. Um, so I think uh, that there's a, there's a tofu revolution uh, waiting to, to happen. And that mm. needs to happen in India at some point, yeah. Yeah, and I feel like now, especially in Singapore, there's this huge trend towards eating more plant-based diets and embracing vegetables. Yeah. And I think for that, we have a lot to learn from India. Could you tell me about some techniques that, you know, one could use to make vegetables more tasty? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, look, vegetables are a big part of, uh, you know, the diet growing up in India. Like, just have a lot of vegetables. Um, and a large part of the country is also vegetarian, okay? And, you know, due to religious reasons or whatever it is. I mean, you'll always have a bunch of vegetarians in your group or you'll have entire families who are vegetarians. So, and it doesn't mean that, you know, they, there's any compromise in taste or flavor for them, right? And there's like an entire, the fantastic things that you can do with vegetables. So I think with the, uh, what I like to do, like, so I run these cooking classes, right? I've been running, uh, I've been teaching people how to cook uh, Indian food. And, you know, sometimes I like to slip in an extra dish just to show them how simple it is. And that's like my little, uh, you know, my little extra that I put onto a class. So once we're done learning how to make all the fancy, you know, the famous dishes, right? Um, you know, I slip in a very simple uh, potatoes and green peas or something like that, right? Or whatever vegetable I've got lying around on the table, right? And not everything has to be crazily spiced or like, you know, has to be some great labor of love. You can just take a little bit, whatever vegetable, you know, a nice fresh vegetable and just season it with a couple of spices, just a little bit, right? Just to do a simple stir fry. Um, and that's it. You'll get a fantastic dish out of it. So I think uh, taking away some of that intimidation, saying that, look, not everything is like a, you know, 
45 uh, minute you know two hour cook yeah that's not it. like you can produce a simple stir fry in just 10 minutes also and that's that's a big part of it so like i do these these sauteed cumin and uh, cumin and and green peas potatoes is aloo jeera um and uh, again very popular i find people you know cooking that more and more often simple ways of uh, you know just using whatever vegetable is in season Mm. and uh, and just giving it a little more flavor i think that is uh, that is there i mean not everything has to be a curry curry you know but yeah. just do something yeah just do stir fries there are so many different kinds when i first started looking at indian food and i didn't know much about it um i was a little bit apprehensive because it was so different from like the chinese vegetables that i was i was used to eating you know in that you fry yeah. it really quickly but in my yeah. mind at that time like the indian treatment of vegetables was like cooked to death in like a curry yeah, or exactly exactly yeah 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 so yeah so that tends to happen sometimes people tend to overcook it right and people people love to pressure cook things you know you don't need to do that so look maintain your modern uh, see you can cook it up to you uh, so you can cook it according to your preference you like a little bit of bite in it go for it no problem at all you control that right you can that's what i tell people listen i'm going to show you how to combine these flavors you, you take it up a notch you want to add more spice go for it you want to take it down that's also totally fine right uh, same way if you want to cook it a little more if you like a little more bite in your beetroot that's totally up to you but if you want it nice and soft that's also uh, your call right so but i think it's a question of uh, of combining you know uh, arriving at something that that you want that you like right um, and whether it's an indian dish or a chinese dish you know ultimately you should be able to personalize it and then going to put put something together that that you truly love so i think with indian food you know we just we have so many spices right i tell people listen don't throw all the spices in together take turns right today you're using cumin right understand that spice really well just do a stir fry just potatoes and cumin right and let's do that tomorrow let's do coriander right you'll get a completely different dish completely mm. different and then come then combine and then pull something in i encourage people to experiment you go into a supermarket you're traveling somewhere you see an interesting spice pick it up buy it by all means how else will you know whether you like it or not right you're mm. never going to know candle nut candle nut is yeah that's another example i should give you i never knew what a candle nut was um would never know uh, Uh, if i hadn't picked it up um, and then try what's the worst that could happen yeah so let's talk about your role as a content creator on instagram i mean what was the motivation behind that right so i've always had a food blog so i don't know if you know my background i used to be a chef i used to be a professional chef many years ago uh went to culinary school did all of that um and then you know worked in the hotels for uh, for some time uh but then you know my career had other plans for me life got in the way and i ended up working at uh, tech companies so i found myself working uh, in internet companies i spent some time at google yahoo started an e-commerce company did 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 a whole bunch of things um and even now i have a corporate job i work at uh, the alibaba group um and and i manage my and i balance my passions in food so uh, i started blogging you know when i made when i switched when i stepped away from the from the commercial kitchen um i started blogging i i used my blog as an outlet to keep in touch with my culinary side um and this is way before i started doing cooking classes or anything it was just a way for me to you know write about food that i discovered if you read my food blog from way back it's quite embarrassing actually but uh, but you know my it was mostly you know restaurant reviews and uh, the odd recipe here and there but over the years you know i i realized that uh, creating content keeps me in touch with food for sure uh, but uh, you know it gives me satisfaction but i realized that you know people would actually cook my recipes right and then i was like okay you know this is not just for me you know getting a putting a recipe out there 
seems to be helping someone, right? Like, you know, someone's stuck. Um, and then, uh, you know, if they have questions, I'm more than happy. I've always been very happy to reply to uh, an email or a DM or whatever it is. So for me, Instagram kind of just became a natural evolution of my blog. So I've had the blog for about uh, 15, 16 years now. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah, and, uh, and but, you know, Instagram is, uh, has picked up a lot in the last few years. And it just became an, an evolution of an extension of my blog, really. So now I think the audience is there. Um, I'm a marketer by profession. So, you know, I go where the audience is. Instagram is where all the foodies and like, you know, it's, it's as a channel, it's working for me well. Yeah. Um, on a business front, I also use market, uh, use Instagram as a marketing tool uh, to promote my cooking classes and, and uh, my pop-ups and things like that that I do whenever there's a, there's a little, there's something I'm doing. Because I do have my side hustle, uh, which is teaching, uh, running these cooking classes every day so instagram has been great for me that way to push out my message but then also you know bring people back in you know, okay you come take a look at my stuff and okay i think this guy knows what he does and then come back and then people stay engaged after my class as well come back for more stuff uh, so that way instagram is a great channel so that's why i spend I, that's why I, I devote time to uh, producing content and you know putting it out there on instagram that's what keeps me going that's fantastic i i would love to ask you like a more personal question which is how do you draw boundaries on social media? Because I mean, social media is a new virtual space that feels so real for so many people and, you know, boundaries are easily crossed. So how do you manage that? Yeah, I think, um, you know, you've got to think of it as, uh, as a business, you know, at some point, like, you know, with the, see, there, there, there's the person. And then there is the business side of it, right? Which is, uh, you know, if you're, if you're there, if you're treating this as an extension of your personal life, right? By all means, you know, put it out there. Like that, that is your call. But then also be prepared for people to be looking in and, you know, seeing that, that glimpse into your life. See, ultimately they, you know, people out there will see as much as you can, as you will put out, right? So, and human tendency is to believe whatever you see. Like you see if, you see five happy photos, you think, okay, everything's great there, right? So people only put up, like, you know, the, the good-looking stuff. You don't see the mess. You don't see the, the crazy, uh, the, the havoc that I wreak every time I cook. So, you know, I think those are things uh, to be aware of. So you draw the line. It depends on how much you want, you are comfortable putting out. Like some people like to put out their personal lives. They like to, you know, talk about their kids, their pets, their family, all of that. That's fine, too. But some people like to keep it, you know, within the confines of, look, I only am going to talk about food. I'm not going to bring politics or religion or whatever into it mm. so really up to you so the beauty of it is you define the boundaries but once you define the boundaries right uh you know like just, just be a little careful to play around them because the audience doesn't know that right? the audience thinks that okay look i can come and ask you questions about anything right um and then you do get questions like a little thing that i started i started uh, gardening i started composting what are you going to do man covid i'm still sitting at home uh, you know the whole year um, you know, nowhere to go. And then I started a little project. I started composting, um, using all my you know, waste and all of that stuff from the kitchen. Great. But, you know, I realized I don't know much about composting. I'm also, it's, uh, it's, I'm learning. And then, uh, you see people, people follow me for my food. They follow me for my food tips and all of that. But listen, you got to be very clear. Listen, guys, I am experimenting here. Okay. Don't follow my composting because you may just end up with like a, <laughs> with a bucket of mulch right so you know draw those things because people do take things very seriously um 
you know, yeah, those, those are little things that I've learned myself in my journey. So I'm listen, if I'm doing an experiment, tell me, listen, this is something I'm experimenting with. I tried making booze once, okay, listen, and that can kill someone, okay, so we've got to be careful, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, so, uh, so those are the, the little things. So draw the boundaries um, and then you're fine. Mm. So how do you think technology has changed the way that we interact with food or share food or learn how to cook food? Right. I think uh, wonderful, right? It, it has, it has made it so much easier. Look, I've been a, like, I've been a student of food um, ever since I was a little kid. Okay. And I, I was in college when the internet was just becoming a thing. I didn't have quick, ready reckoning of these books, you know, that that's what I would refer to. Um, and, you know, just you have to go to the library. I think technology has made that, that gap much, much smaller, right? If you are intrigued by something, right? Like last night, I got into this thing about uh, Japanese knives, right? And Damascus steel on Japanese knives. What's the thing? It's so much easier to get that information now, right? And then after that, like not only can you go and read about it, not only can you go and watch like a cool video about it being made, you can go and find a guy who actually makes it and then puts up pictures of the process on his Instagram stories. Right? So that that exposure, right? That knowledge uh, gap, right? Is is so much easier to fill. And then, you know, you can go or like find a podcast or then find somebody like yourself, right? Who's doing such a good job of documenting cuisine about a place that, that, that you're curious about. So I think those, those, the resources that technology has put um, at your fingertips, right? That is, that is truly priceless. And again, if I want to share something, right? Just the ability to get out there and like take a picture and then a million people see it, right? That is power. That is powerful. So I think um, great. I mean, I think it's going to do great. It is already doing great things for food. Um, and the way people eat. What about the differences between virtual cooking classes and in-person cooking classes? What are some of the differences that you have discerned and which is your favorite or like your preferred method of teaching mm -hmm. someone? Yeah, I love this question because uh, virtual cooking classes, like, I mean, I have a job now which, I didn't, which didn't exist a year ago. And uh, uh, look, here's the thing. They're two very different things, okay? So I, I don't think of them as an extension, like my... Uh, Virtual came after the walk-in, obviously, but it's really so vastly different that uh, that I don't. The only thing in common is me, like it's the same guy doing the thing. But as such, you know, with virtual, you know, you have to be mindful of the ingredients. You have to be mindful of you know stuff that that people can access, uh, you know, remotely, right? Or like this thing. Like I had a couple in Norway who came for the class, and uh, I didn't realize that just finding uh, garlic, uh, sorry, ginger would be such a big thing. They just couldn't find ginger. They had to take. Uh, you know, they had to order it specially and things like that. So um, th there are a lot of things, herbs, for example, coriander, right? Good luck finding coriander in a place that is like really cold or like, you know, completely ice capped. So, I mean, there are things that, so when I'm planning my menu for the online classes, for the virtual classes, I do have to put a lot more thought into that. Uh, but as such, uh, uh, you know, I've got them for 90 minutes, right? On, on a Zoom call, exactly the Zoom call that we're on. Um, so, so, you know, when, when you're only spending 90 minutes with someone, uh, you got to make sure that, you know, they're having a good time and that's it's memorable and, and there's like, there's banter going around, uh, going along. Sometimes my groups get pretty big. My biggest group like has gone up to like 140. So like, how do you manage that many people, you know, make sure that everyone's having a good time. So it means that my senses have to be a hundred percent on because I'm, I'm cooking, but then I'm also keeping an eye on the audience and making sure that they're having a good time. So for online, the, the, the skills required are a little more. With offline, with walk-in, 
you know people come in that's fine like you know they take their time some people don't want to cook someone wants to pet your dog someone wants to you know you know nurse a gin and tonic in the corner that's fine like so the the lay you know, it's very much more laid back um, but you know that said the work that goes into a walk in experience because you're physically hosting people right it is that much more physical work to do um is very different from the virtual experience where as a business as a businessman i would say virtual is more profitable i guess because like you know you still got to make one bowl of curry for you know regardless of how many people come and your your mind is working so you're you're using while you may not get as physically tired your brain is switched on all the time and you're looking at a chat box somewhere and they're looking at like so many different screens making sure that everyone's got something going um so so yeah it's a, it's two different skill sets almost mm-hmm. um and uh, yeah very different but i think i think virtual is here to stay i mean i've just done so many like my virtual experiences has actually sold outsold my in person experience by almost wow. like 6 7 times it's huge so like i i host every day now like with with walk in i could only host on the weekends i could only have people come over on the weekend i can do like six you know four to six people that was the thing but with online right there's no cap really so i host every day i host early in the morning um, and i have about anywhere between 6 to 10 people coming in uh, on a daily basis so so you can so the numbers really rack up mm-hmm. very differently Would you walk me through a virtual experience with you? What what happens in a in an experience? So my my classes are very laid back. Okay, my thing is to focus on having a good time. You know, put away the pen and paper, don't don't write. I'll send you the recipes. Part of why my Instagram works well because I send people the recipes that are on my Instagram. They come and they they get the recipe and then they get some more. That's usually my model. But you start a class, I just get introduced to the people. I say, hey, where are you from? what do you do give talk talk about myself a little bit um and look it is a virtual experience right uh, they you know there's a big there's a big part of it where you know where people want to travel but they're not able to travel so i give them a little virtual tra- travel experience as well so i show them singapore look um, i'm i'm been like i'm i'm very lucky i live in a in a place where you know i can i can show point some like interesting parts of singapore out so i literally put you know switch the zoom switch the camera on the other side and i show people singapore they, they can see a little bit of the skyline they see the sea um couple of things you know people don't know uh, don't know much about singapore apart from that it's like super clean and super safe what else right there's so much more to this country and like i um, like i said i'm i've i moved here 7 years ago and for me i'm still learning and i love this place and you know especially making local friends you learn so much uh, so many new things right about just i mean just local culture and things like that so um so yeah i mean i i point out different kinds of housing show them uh, you know the, like a shop house right nobody knows what a shop house is okay since you're going to go with the definition of what a shop house is you're not really going to understand to talk about that uh, talk about uh, the proximity of singapore to so many other places in southeast asia people have questions people have a lot of questions so we talk about singapore for a bit and then we go into the food um and usually my style is i give people a list of ingredients to prep before the class so that you know they've got uh, you know everything is ready like uh, i ask you to like chop a bowl of onions right so that you don't start cutting your onions on the call um and that's it and then we start cooking it's very conversational it's laid back and if you don't have a few spices i'll say okay fine let's let's take a look at what you've got in your cupboard and then uh, you know we we put something together so at the end of the thing you know we cook um uh, i'm cooking along of course uh, and you know people can follow me on two screens one's on my big fat face and the other one's on my stove 
And, uh, and you know, at the end of it, we're done. We, we cook together and then I play it up as well. I said, listen, if you want to be like some fancy influencer, celebrity, Insta type, um, listen, we can, we can make that happen, okay? So go get a pretty bowl and then I show them how to play it up a little bit. And, uh, you know, just, that's it. Very lighthearted, very fun. Um, and then send them the recipes at the end of it. Uh, yeah, that's, that's usually the, the, the flow, the run of show, if I want to call it. Um, and it seems to be working well. I think the, the evidence behind this is always the reviews. So uh, I, take, I take that very seriously because, uh, you know, ultimately people should be having a good time. So, so yeah, five-star reviews for the last three years now. So I'm pretty happy. Nice. I love that so much. I, I can see like all your different influences and your, your job as a chef, you know, your work in a, in a tech, all yeah. amalgamating into this form. I think just now you mentioned that uh, you felt that blogging was an outlet for you to connect with your culinary passions uh, while you were working as a chef. And I find that very interesting because, you know, usually people think that if you're a chef, you are like constantly luxuriating in this culinary passions. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it, it's, see, the passion is one thing, right? But like, if you're not cooking, right? Like, you know, see, I stepped away from, from the kitchen from the hotel line, not because, you know, I didn't love it, you know, I, I, I still, I, I was always in love with it, but I had to make more money and like, well, whatever, I had bills to pay, but that was the reason I moved away. But for me, it was very important to stay engaged, stay plugged in, still, you know, have friends who are chefs, who are restaurateurs, so that I continue to learn something about that space, right? And I just found that blogging was a good way to do that because uh, when I started writing restaurant reviews, right, it was mostly about, you know, uh, discovering new things to do in town. Like I think, uh, and I used to write for a magazine actually, you know, what's up in your town, that little thin thing that everyone has usually. But uh, uh, I found that, you know, just doing that, doing the restaurant reviews also kept me in touch with the F&B industry um, and, and build, you know, build that kinship with, with, with the industry, which, uh, you know, maybe I don't work in the industry immediately, but now when I'm ready to kind of, you know, I do pop-ups now, right? I, I do restaurant takeovers. I, you know, I have a, I've invested in a small restaurant back in India as well. Now, I feel like, you know, the, the time spent in just documenting food and restaurants and things like that, right? It's just made my life a little more easy, you know, to go back. See, for me, my plan was always to, yes, and it still is, like I'm executing that plan, right? Work with corporates, you know, have your job. Eventually, yes, what's the end goal? I will probably, you know, get back into the food industry in one form or another. Maybe it's these cooking classes, maybe it's a restaurant, maybe it's all of them, right? So, but for me, just having stayed in touch with the industry in some form or the other, providing exposure to a business that I felt passionate about, right? Um, or, you know, cooking some recipes that, that, that really made a difference to me. That has just made my transition back into the food world. I feel like I never left, you know, I feel mm. like I never left. So that's the, that's the beauty of it. Or else I could have been this guy who went, you know, went, you know, worked in all these tech startups or whatever, did their thing and, uh, you know, then comes back and then wants to start from scratch. But now I feel like I'm, I'm plugged in. I've got, uh, you know, I've made some wonderful friends and I've learned so much. You know, I've learned a lot, a lot, a lot. Like, there have been techniques that have come up, cooking techniques in the last few years that, you know, I would not get to do if they weren't uh, like sous vide, for example, right? That's, that's a really big way and it's changed the way people cook. And yeah, maybe, maybe you love it, maybe you don't, but it's either way, it's learning, right? Um, and I've got that. And by having a blog, by, by creating content, by collaborating with other creators, that, that's what's kept it uh, 
very very alive mm. and do you feel like this new era of um, technology and virtual tourism uh, do you think it's here to stay even after covid absolutely so that's a great question i think uh, you know while there might be some drop off of your uh, of your travelers who were not able to travel and, and have started coming in i think what i've realized in the last year or so okay when i started virtual it was all about travelers who couldn't go right oh my god my my uh, my my holiday got canceled i have nothing to do that kind of thing but as the year as the months have gone on i have found a whole new segment of of traveler right virtual traveler and a lot of those are people who want to travel but can't travel because they're either old or you know they just don't have the the finances right because that's also something that's there you can spend 35 40 bucks and travel anywhere on a virtual experience and have a pretty great time right but versus spending you know a few thousand dollars to to actually do it right that's different but i think the most important segment is the one where people want to bond right there is there are these companies um like any multinational company any any team that is remotely distributed or a family that is remotely you know staying in four or five different places right they still need to get together right and that is something that does happen the number of birthdays are celebrated the number of anniversaries are celebrated right when people come together it's a great way to get your family together and cook something and something unusual to do right i mean you we all got our whatsapp family groups and all of that but if you're not able to travel or there's a tra- family member who's not able to come in how do you do something that's inclusive and still going to hold hold you folks together right uh, virtual experiences have really been answering that question a lot uh, in for for companies you know from a team bonding perspective but also from for families right just from a bonding perspective um, and i think that's not going to change that's always going to be there you will always have you know a relative studying somewhere somebody else who's gone somewhere else and you want to hang out maybe just for like an hour or 90 minutes maybe once a month you know that could be anything and then, so i think that that will always be that will always be there. and i'm not saying cooking has to be the virtual experience you could do cooking you could do this indian like i have these several families who come back to me again and again and i met either lot of people in their family so maybe you know the dishes change right or the the construct of it changes maybe it, you know like i did singaporean food for another family the other day i talked about like chili crab it was great they came for an indian class but now you know they they know that this is a fun thing to do and now they want to learn more stuff right? so we do that so there will always i think this is always going to be there That's fantastic. So I have one last question for you and that is what are some of your favorite places to eat at in Singapore? Ooh, I love I love <laughs> Singapore food and I have so much right. So here's one thing. Hawker centers is something that I absolutely absolutely fell in love with when I moved here. Um and and you know I know Singapore has great food and the great restaurants all of that. But for me just the thrill of sitting in a hawker center and uh, you know just to see the action the hubbub around me right that was great uh, but a couple of things there is one uh, there's a hokkien mee that i that i do indulge in very often in a place called hongheng uh, hokkien mee in chongbaru uh, i really love that uh, the hokkien mee there uh, chakwetiao at otrum park that that's also something i'm very fond of um sichuan food i i really uh, like uh, sichuan food at uh, mosque street there's a place called my grandmother's place um i like that a lot and very recently i want to say recently maybe 2 years ago i uh, again local singaporean friend introduced me to ayam penyet and that is something that was really good uh, so a place called ayam penyet ria which is in lucky plaza i believe in orchard 
um yeah these are some these are some of my favorite places to do i i think the hockey and me i go very often i've become uh, you know i go in friends now with the, with the uncle who makes it and uh, you know all all with the extra squid and the chili and everything is just so good fantastic uh, and and you know i think just you just really it's one thing to taste wokhe it's one thing to stand in it uh, so you know wokhe was something which was great so i mean, just love i love just <laughs> watching my noodles being made there um, and uh, yeah probably my favorite thing to eat yeah. yeah i mean i learned so much from you through this entire call i mean be it indian food or you know this whole new era that we are experiencing with technology and covid yeah thank you so much for coming on the podcast i really appreciate it no thank thank you so much familia uh, i do appreciate you reaching out and and i love what you're doing there wraps up another episode of the singapore noodles podcast you have been listening to drew shankar who is the founder of met onion slicer on instagram and the boring food workshops on airbnb Once again, thank you all for listening to the podcast and I'll catch you all next week.